Hello, this is Haley Nauman, and you're listening to the Maybe Baby podcast. Today I'm going to be reading my 14th newsletter. It's called My Brain is Melting in Suburbia. It should have hit your inbox two days ago on July 12th. If it didn't, it may mean that your email is shuffling it into spam or marking it as a promotion. And I'm so sorry if that's happening. I've heard from some people that they're not getting the newsletter every Sunday. I do send it every Sunday at 9 a.m. So if you're not getting it, I've suggested a couple ways to combat the filters that are happening. Um, It might be easier to read than for me to say, so just check out my most recent newsletter if this is happening to you, and I'm so sorry if it is. This week's newsletter is about arriving in California and noticing how different I felt than I did in New York and grappling with the fact that that felt both good and also somehow wrong that I had escaped the challenges of a city that I love and... I kind of wanted to explore what it means to escape and retreat. And it doesn't necessarily mean going to the suburbs. It can mean something different to everybody. But I thought that was a kind of rich and complicated emotion to examine. So I went with that. This week's was actually a little bit easier to write. Um, I think that's probably because I was in California and relaxed. Um, But it still took me a while to write. I'm kind of a slow writer and... um, I did have a lot of fun writing this one, though, because I got to look into a book I really love and quote it, and I think it's always nice to include other people's work in my work because it enriches it and helps me remember that I don't have to solve all these answers myself. There's almost kind of a delusion of grandeur in that idea, so it made me want to include more of other people's writing in my writing. Okay, here goes. Part one, leaving town. Last Saturday, I flew to San Diego with my brother and boyfriend. The plane was filled to 25% capacity and smelled like rain-scented hand soap. Not unpleasant. We wiped everything obsessively before we sat down, and then again whenever we touched anything. Compulsively sanitizing like this always makes me feel half crazy, because I'm either doing it completely unnecessarily, or I'm literally wiping away a lethal virus, neither of which I want to be true. Once we were in the air, the flight attendant handed each of us a Ziploc bag containing a mini water bottle, a mini packet of Cheez-Its, and two mini Toblerone chocolate bars, as there would be no beverage or snack service. I accepted them like a grateful kindergartner. I spent most of the flight writing, the boys sleeping on either side of me. I paused only to sneak an entire hard-boiled egg under my mask and into my mouth, which was a humiliating and regrettable experience I will never repeat again for the rest of my life. When we landed, Avi was sweating and said he felt ill. And in the car to my parents' place, he sat slumped against the window as if he were about to pass out. Andy and I exchanged looks. Could he have caught it that fast? We didn't feel well either. But then we'd abstained from drinking liquids all morning to avoid public restrooms and had been wearing masks for nine straight hours. So of course we did. When we got inside, we ripped them off like we'd been holding our breath under a pool. And within an hour, we felt better. Even Avi, who reasoned he'd gotten plain sick, which sounded fake but I believed him. My parents have been asking us to come here since April. We turned them down out of reluctance to leave New York or spread ourselves around unnecessarily, and because we thought their condo would be too crowded for all of us. But my sister moving to Denver changed things. 
She needed help with childcare, so my parents decided to drive to Colorado, which meant their place would be empty for a few weeks, and they needed someone to water their plants. House-sitting, my mom called it. I knew what she was doing, reframing the offer as a favor so we would feel good about accepting it. And it was kind. And once we realized we could safely quarantine after flying, we said yes and immediately started dreaming of their backyard, which is actually just a deck as big as mine and Avi's entire apartment. Once here, we ran all around the place, up the stairs, around the kitchen. There was sunlight and space to do jumping jacks, and with three bedrooms, the possibility of not seeing each other for hours at a time. My parents had left us printed out sheets of instructions on the counter about when to take out their trash, how to check their tomato plants for caterpillars, and where to go on hikes, which we couldn't get over. We were so excited to not be in our apartments that we almost felt manic, shooting texts of gratitude to our parents as if they'd single-handedly saved our lives. I immediately put on a bathing suit for no reason. And then Avi perked up, and New York might as well have been on the other side of the world. Part 2. Melting literally and metaphorically. It's hot here. I keep getting burned. A couple days ago, I left my book out in the sun, M Train by Patti Smith. And when I went back to read it a couple hours later, all the pages before my bookmark fell out of the melted spine and onto my stomach. I was shocked for a second, confused. And then I thought it was kind of satisfying to hold what I'd read in my hands. I'd never seen book pages detached like that. They somehow seemed less significant that way, like anyone can make a book. When I started reading, every page I turned fell out, one by one, just like that. I felt like I was living some kind of heavy-handed metaphor about story, the way you can't take it back, or the way it matters less once it's happened. I was grateful I had an intact version back at my apartment, a present from Avi. This one was a press copy. I've been spending as much time as possible outside, wearing the same two bathing suits on a loop. The other day, I popped dramatically onto a deck chair and hit the back of my thigh against the corner of it, where a blood blister immediately formed. It looked horrific, which I liked. I wasn't sure if it needed to be popped or cleaned, and it wasn't an awkward place for me to judge, so Avi offered to take a look, which sounded like heaven to me. I lay face down on the couch and looked out the window at a tree swaying in the breeze while he gently examined it, and I thought to myself, I'm so happy right now. I imagined we were orangutans and he was picking nits out of my fur under the shade of a rock. And then I thought, I must really have been down in New York. Most afternoons, we drive my mom's car along the coast and listen to music from high school. Blink-182, The Starting Line, Seosin. And every night we cook and eat out back as if we were born to live like this. I feel a little like a teenager again. Not because I grew up in San Diego. My parents moved here four years ago. But because I feel so taken care of so safe and isolated and malleable. And that reminds me of when the world seemed much simpler to me. I have room for solitude, access to private outdoor space, enough time in the sun for my book to melt. That these seem like almost inappropriate luxuries might speak to a New York mentality that fetishizes suffering. But I wonder if it's not also a recognition of the grim reality that most people simply don't have these things, and it's not fair that I do. Then the light breeze carries that thought away and I'm 16 again and it feels both rapturous and dangerous to be nostalgic for that kind of ignorance. Part 3. Retreating and its opposite. I've been thinking a lot about the morality of societal withdrawal, and how much easier it is to do in the suburbs. In a city, you're thrust into the contradictions of modern life. You have no choice but to grapple with human suffering and the moral turpitude of billionaires every day. The risk is only that you become inured to them. And to be fair, many do. But manicured suburbs inoculate you by design. They obscure the inherent chaos of human organization with clean lines. To engage with a more varied reality, you have to seek it out, 
And if you don't want to, you don't have to. And many don't. As my brother said the other day, our faces turned up to the sun. It's easy to imagine not taking the virus seriously here. Everything almost seems fine. Of course, we know it's not. But in New York, we couldn't wrap our heads around thinking otherwise. And now we can. This inner conflict, a feeling both deeply relieved and questionably insulated, led me to revisit Jenny O'Dell's chapter on the impossibility of retreat in her book, How to Do Nothing. In it, she explores the concept of utopia, and especially the way the communes of the 1960s attempted to create their own by withdrawing from an increasingly industrialized world. As O'Dell explains it, although many communes achieved some version of a peaceful and egalitarian society initially, they almost always gave way to some kind of political turmoil, either via outright conflict or something more insidious, like oppression via manipulation, often by a single man who fancied himself God. To draw conclusions about why communes fail, Odell borrows the philosophical writings of Hannah Arendt, who argued that any attempt to design a perfect society was merely an avoidance of, quote, the haphazards and moral responsibilities inherent in a plurality of agents. In other words, organizing and cooperating is messy as fuck, and the only way to escape that would be to obfuscate free will, or transfer power from all to power for a few. As Odell puts it, quote, there's no such thing as a clean break or a blank slate in this world. I think what she's saying is that, as a political gesture, withdrawal from society falls short of changing anything. To escape it all, into the woods, into a commune, into your own little world, which you can do anywhere, is to either accept that some must suffer for your pleasure or ignore suffering altogether. And yet she also acknowledges the necessity of retreat from time to time. In fact, how to do nothing is itself an argument for how to retreat thoughtfully and politically. Odell writes, quote, We have to be able to do both, to contemplate and participate, to leave and always come back where we are needed. As the attention economy works to keep us trapped in a frightful present, it only becomes more important not just to recognize past versions of our predicament, but to retain the capacity for an imagination somehow untainted by disappointment. I don't think the suburbs necessarily represent a retreat, nor does the city represent participation. If anything, this moment of turmoil has highlighted the unjust hierarchies that exist everywhere. But I do think we all understand, on an individual level, what it means to show up for ourselves and to show up for others. And maybe the challenge of living thoughtfully is learning to find harmony between the two. As Gia Tolentino put it in a recent interview, quote, The people setting the best example right now are long-term movement workers who know how to integrate righteous rage into a life that includes joy and pleasure and lightness. Organizers know how to rest when they need to, without ever leaving the fight. So that's it for part three, and that's it for the written section. But before I move on to the recommendations list, I wanted to address um, a comment that somebody left in response to that last section um, that I thought brought up a good point, and I wanted to use this opportunity to clarify. Um, I didn't necessarily mean to say that people in suburbs are willfully ignorant and people in cities are necessarily politically engaged or participating in the fight for progress. Um, I do think that in a city you're exposed to more and maybe the barrier to entry is a little bit lower for engaging with, you know, different walks of life. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean everyone is. Um, and just because the um, barrier is a little bit higher in the suburbs or in a place that I think of as being a little bit more homogenous by design doesn't necessarily mean people aren't um, scaling that and engaging plenty. 
Um, I also think, you know, on top of all that, it's probably not completely fair to bifurcate cities and suburbs like that. Because I think there are all kinds of suburbs. There are poor neighborhoods, there are rich neighborhoods, and the same could be said for different areas of the city. And um, I think the reason that this dichotomy resonated with me right now is that um, in the pandemic, it's quite a different experience to be in the suburbs where life has not changed as drastically as in the cities. So in that way, I think it represented more of a retreat um, than it might otherwise. So I think ultimately, um, kind of judging someone's political engagement based on where they live isn't isn't really fair. Um, I think to the point I made in the end, it's really about your individual um, knowledge of yourself and what it means to engage and what it means to disengage and figuring out um, how to balance the two. Okay, 15 things I consume this week. Question, do you think 15 is too many or good or not enough? I don't think I would actually ever change it to be more than 15, but I've always wondered if it's fun to have that many or if it's kind of overwhelming because visually it's a lot. So if you have a strong opinion, let me know because I'm curious. Okay, number one. This is a line from The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt which I think about a lot um, and especially feel like it's been relevant in quarantine, but I finally looked up the exact wording and wanted to share it. Quote, To understand the world at all, sometimes you could only focus on a tiny bit of it. Look very hard at what was close to hand and make it stand in for the whole. There's actually a bunch of lines from the goldfinch that I've never forgotten. The other one was about how it was small-minded to think of right and wrong in a singular sense because sometimes the wrong thing led to the right thing and sometimes the right thing could only happen if the wrong thing happened first and I always really appreciated the fact that she made room for nuance and something that seemed so black and white to me especially as I was navigating a lot of my life decisions at the time and feeling that I had made the wrong ones and I was very comforted to think that maybe the wrong one was going to lead me to the right one the way that the quote right one might not have. So I've always held a couple of those ideas really close. And um, this one about letting the world stand in or letting something that's really close to you stand in for the whole really resonated with me right now when we have so little access to the world. Number two is a literally heartbreaking tweet about the blobfish, who you might remember as that sort of wet-looking fish that washed up on shore that everyone made fun of for being hideous. It kind of looks like it's melting. Its nose is draping over its mouth. It's, it, it really does look like a dollop of pudding, but in like a pink, fleshy texture. It's, it's very unappetizing. Um, and everyone said it was hideous, and it became a laughingstock, but it turns out, at least according to this tweet, that in its natural habitat, the blobfish looks like a totally normal, precious little fish. And it had just gotten extreme tissue damage by being pulled up rapidly by fishers because it normally is about 3,000 feet below sea level. So I found that to be uniquely tragic and sad. And um, 
you know, I love the blobfish before, but I do feel sorry that he was um, miscast, misrepresented. Okay, number three, the first season of The Great, a show on Hulu starring Elle Fanning and Nicholas Holt, which I watched faster than I've watched any show in recent memory. I can't remember who recommended this to me. It was someone on Twitter whose taste I trust. And they said they were surprised at how much they loved it. And I have to agree. It was genuinely entertaining, really fun to watch, really great performances. And um, can't speak at all to its historical accuracy, but it's, it's a good show to get lost in. Number four is a profile of a Christian minister named Junia Joplin, who recently risked her job to come out to her congregation as trans. Um, I thought that this profile was done in a really unique way. It was sort of dramatic in that it was kind of following the live unfolding of Junia's decision to come out this way and kind of what happened afterward. And it was also written by a trans woman. And I think that that lent it a really special and intimate air. And then the actual sermon in which Junia came out, which was done digitally because people aren't in um, churches right now, uh, was inserted in the story. And I think it's about 20 minutes, but um, Avi and I watched it at the kitchen table and both of us ended it in complete tears. It's so moving. And I mean, I'm not religious. I left the church when I was like 14. So um, the actual kind of talk of the Bible wasn't necessarily what brought me here. I don't know much about the Bible at all, but um, she was speaking to some pretty universal ideas and it's just a really moving speech basically and if you're in the mood to cry definitely check it out number five the google results for the following question why don't i remember any movies i did not get a clear answer on this but i actually queried this in earnest because i literally cannot remember any movies i've seen i several times i have watched movies and realized in the end that i've seen them before and they, I might have even seen them in the last year. I just actually do not retain plots or literally anything that happens. Like the next day after we go to a movie, sometimes Avi will be like, I've been thinking about that part and I think that maybe it was this. And I will just be like, what happened in that movie? It will be 24 hours later and I'll be like, I don't, I don't know what that movie was about. <laughs> so, you know, either I don't give a shit about movies and my brain just doesn't care to retain them or I am broken somehow. So please report if you have a good answer because Google did not provide one. Oh, and also relevant to this is that Avi remembers everything he's ever seen and knows the cast of movies that were made in like the 1940s and I think might have some kind of photographic memory for movies. So he's also making me look especially bad, but I do think that I'm somehow broken. Anyway, moving on. Number six. This moving clip of Maya Angelou reading one of her poems, posted by my friend Bobby. This is a poem called When I Think About Myself, and all I can say is you should definitely watch it. It's incredible and sad, and I have been thinking about it since I watched it. I also looked up a interview with Angelou in the Paris Review about her writing process. I can't remember how I stumbled upon this, but um, I did bookmark it because I found it so riveting. Um, she's such a character, and I found her writing process deeply entertaining. So if you're a writer or you're just curious, check that out. Number seven. 
The weekly rental rate for a medium-sized yacht I walked past the other day in downtown San Diego after my brother looked it up online. Wait for it. $275,000 a week. I included this because seeing it and then looking up the price sent me down a whole rabbit hole of thinking about wealth and how it's distributed in this country and how unjust it is that there are people who make enough to pay for that and there's just absolutely no way they're working harder than so many poor people that couldn't imagine to afford that and or even people like me people in the middle like there's just there's no justice in a world where some people are starving where so many kids are don't have food security and then there's people paying $275,000 a week just to stay on a yacht I'll get off my soapbox but that's just it's just it's wrong. <sighs> Number eight. This is a profile in the New York Times of Ziwe Fumido, most known as Ziwe. Um, if you haven't heard of her, she has a comedic show called Baited that she does on Instagram Live. Um, and it's with controversial figures like Caroline Calloway, Allison Roman, Rose McGowan, and a bunch of others. Um, they keep going viral, and I have had a sort of mixed feelings on the show. I totally respect Z-Way and appreciate um, kind of her creative prowess, but I wasn't really sure if the show was meant to be purely comedic or, or if it was supposed to be um, kind of more focused on achieving progress kind of more literally. And I think that um, the way she put it in this profile, which is part of why I sought it out, I was really curious to hear some of her thinking on this, is that it's a comedic way to take discomfort that's often invisible and endured by black people and make it visible and endured by white people. I thought that was a really genius way of framing the show and um, a really smart way of thinking about some of the kind of invisible forces that shape injustice in our modern life and thinking about ways to subvert them. And um, her show does a really good job of doing that. And I think it's really useful to think of it in those terms versus necessarily assuming that the questions she's asking and the answers people are providing are um, necessarily the topics that need to be covered in order to achieve progress. I think that's probably taking it a little too literally. Number nine is a series I watched on Instagram, actually, called Two Lizards. It was created by Mariam Banani and Orion Barkey. Um, they collaborated from afar and made this show that is unlike anything I've ever seen. It depicts um, two lizards walking around New York and dealing with quarantine if that sounds weird, it definitely is, and it's absolutely worth the watch. You can watch the whole thing in like 20 minutes. It's it's completely charming and somehow also heartbreaking, and it's one of the most creative and genius things I've seen come out of this whole situation. Number 10 is two different pieces about Michaela Cole. She is the creator of I May Destroy You, which is a new show on HBO that everyone is talking about. Um, I think it deserves the attention. It's 
it's clear that it's the result of a singular, compelling vision. Um, Michaela wrote it and stars in it and I believe directs um, and produces it. And it's it's both realistic and yet surreal. It's dark and also light. Um, it's kind of hard to describe, but I've, I think it's it's really fresh and different. And I'm really excited to finish the season. And I was excited to read about her because I think her perspective on some of the um, conversations happening online right now is actually a little different than what I've heard. And I found that to be really refreshing. Number 11 is the definition of the word Bildungsroman, which is a word I never heard before, but it was used in Doreen St. Felix's um, New Yorker piece about Michaela Cole. And the definition is, quote, a novel dealing with one person's formative years or spiritual education. So basically a fancy word for coming of age. Number 12 is a series of public art pieces done by a French designer named Jean Julien. I think I just follow him randomly, probably from my Explore tab on Instagram. But I love these pieces. They depict large figures doing things in a park and they're super whimsical and they reminded me of being outdoors and not inside and I just found them completely charming so if that piques your interest you should check them out. Number 13 is an advice column from the New York Times called The Ethicist. The question posed is I've protested for racial justice. Do I have to post on social media? It was answered by Kwame Anthony Apia I clicked on it because I've had some friends asking similar questions, especially ones who don't have as much of an internet presence and felt that posting political content would feel performative since they don't really ever post about anything Um, and sort of just grappling with whether it was worse to perform your virtues versus to not say anything. And um, Apia talks about virtue signaling and the obvious pitfalls, but also the kind of underreported upon values of even just societal pressure to do things. And he kind of talks about the history of virtue signaling and the ways it's been used for good. And I just thought that was an, um, sorry, I'm not going to use the word interesting. I thought that was a, a, a take I'd never looked into before, which is the history of basically performing your values. Uh, We always think of it as a uniquely modern issue, but um, it goes back a long time to other ways of performing yourself, whether it's through clothing or um, other symbols. So if you're interested or you've been grappling with this question, I think this is a really good one to read. Number 14, this line from M Train by Patti Smith, quote, without noticing, I slip into a light yet lingering malaise, not depression, more like a fascination for melancholia. I was drawn to this line because sometimes feeling down feels good. And I thought that captured this well. And finally, we've arrived. Number 15. For some reason, this distant dance party between Margaret Qualey and Caitlin Deaver, which made me want to dance. This is a video posted to Instagram by Margaret Qualey. I don't even follow her. Actually, I do now, I think. But I don't know how I discovered this, but it was very charming. And it did make me want to dance. That's it for recommendations. One last thing before I go, just a little update that the Maybe Baby podcast is going to be exclusive to paying members of Maybe Baby as soon as I launch that, which is happening in the next week. I wanted to do the first few for free just so you could get a feel for whether you liked it and would want to pay for it. And um, 
You'll get to see the terms of being a paid member in a week when I launch it. Um, It's basically just to support the newsletter and to get access to audio recordings as well as my monthly advice column, Dear Baby. So if you're interested in supporting the newsletter, I hope you check that out. If not, there will still be three free newsletters every month. So hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for subscribing and listening and I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.